Well, let's remain standing, and I invite you, I encourage you to take up your copy of God's Word and turn it to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. We are going to read this morning verses 18 through 30 of chapter 8. Give attention, of course, as we read all of this but especially to verses 28 through 30, which will be our focus this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning our reading in verse 18. And let us give heed to this as it is read, because this is God's word given to us this morning from God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, for that word that is breathed out by you and delivered to us this morning that is illumined in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, and we pray, God, this morning that as your word is preached, that you would be glorified, that you would be the one who speaks. We pray, Father, that the vessel who delivers these words would, would fade away. We pray that you, O oh God, would be the one that we hear. We pray that your Spirit would work through the preaching of your word. Uh, that we may know what you have for us today in these words. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but this morning we are looking at three of the most important and probably well-recognized verses in the book of Romans. Verse 28 is one of the most well-known and greatly loved verses, one of the greatest promises that we have in the New Testament. 
and verses 29 and 30 are two of the most doctrinally important verses in the New Testament, especially regarding what the Scripture has to say about our salvation and about the grand purpose of God in saving a people from their sin. It speaks to us about the security that we have uh, through Christ and by God and His purpose. In fact, if you can find a Christian who, who's been a Christian for any amount of time, who, including yourself, who has not quoted or at least paraphrased Romans 8.28 at some point in their life, probably at some point in the last month, I'd be surprised. And for very good reason. It is a specific and very powerful source of comfort for every Christian. If you don't have it memorized, you should have it memorized. If you don't have it highlighted in your Bible, you should have it highlighted in your Bible. And if, if you can find a Christian, especially a, an informed Christian who does not realize the importance of verses 29 and 30, or what is known as the golden chain of salvation, I would likewise be quite surprised. What does happen, though, is that in quoting or taking comfort from verse 28, the Christians often do not realize what's just ahead in verses 29 and 30. They don't realize that they come right after that verse and are an important follow-on, an important uh, support, and an important uh, amplification of verse 28. Hopefully we will remedy that this morning as we uh, look at these verses, and if you are sitting here this morning or listening to this online or watching it online, hopefully you will come away uh, with a better understanding of this, and therefore a greater uh, appreciation for what God has done and a greater love for the God who has done it. The sermon title this morning uh, is A Great Promise and a Grand Purpose, and we're going to go ahead and use that as our outline as well this morning. We will look at a great promise, that's verse 28, and we will look at a grand purpose in verses 29 and 30. So we'll begin in verse 28 by looking at that great promise. We read this morning uh, beginning back in verse 18, and we've of course looked at that a few weeks ago, and as they, we were there we were reminded about the topic of suffering in the Christian life. Uh, specifically, though, what we learned about suffering there is that, as Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us. And through our studies, we know that life and fallenness and sin and Satan all deal us a variety of types of suffering. But we have also learned that those are not worth comparing with what God has for us, that great inheritance that we have. We've also learned, and we know, that in light of the plan of God, that we have been justified by grace through faith, through the work of Christ. We know that because, we are, because of that, we are absolutely free from the condemnation that our sin deserves. And we know that we have been given 
the Holy Spirit of God. We've been looking at that here in Romans chapter 8 as well. The Holy Spirit who indwells us. The Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit who even bears witness with our own spirit that we are God's children. And the Spirit we have seen who intercedes for us, even when we don't know what we should pray for. And partly because of of the assured intercession of the Spirit in our need, and overall because of the, the overarching plan of God in all of this that we've been looking at, we know, Paul says here in Romans 8, 28, we know something else. Something that's beautiful. Something glorious. Something humbling. Something encouraging, something strengthening, something that God wants us to know. We know, Paul says, look at verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in the flow of chapter 8 here, this statement, this verse is in one way sort of a a penultimate comment, a sort of pre-summary of the blessed events of those who are justified in Christ. Next week, as we begin to look, we're really going to see Paul start to summarize all of these things and to lay out the implications of what we've been learning over the past uh, several, several weeks as we've looked at this. And as we look at these verses this morning, as we look at verse 28 to start with, there are two tasks before us, two things to unpack in this verse. And that is, who is this promise for, and what is this promise? Who is this promise for is the first thing. It's very important. It's very important to Paul, apparently. Is it for everyone? Is this a universal promise? Should we tell Anyone who is going through a bad time or has gone through a bad time, don't worry. The Bible says that all things work together for good. Well, Paul wants us to be sure to understand this, to understand the answer to this, so he gives it to us twice. He sort of sandwiches the promise of verse 28 between... Well, two slices of bread that qualify the promise, that qualify who the promise is for. Again, look at verse 28. He says the promise is first for those who love God. And that's an interesting phrase. It's an interesting phrase within Paul's writing. Paul very often speaks of God's love for his people. He does it here in this book. He does it throughout his writings. But he doesn't very often speak about our love for God. Although, of course, without a doubt, that is a description of everyone who is in Christ. Part of being in Christ is that, that the, we have been reconciled to God. That he has been reconciled to us. That the things that, that stood between us and God have been removed. That our, our enmity towards God has been removed. So that just as God loves us, people of God, every person of God, loves God. And Paul says this promise is for those. It is for those who love God. 
We were haters of God. Now we are lovers of God. And the promise of verse 28 is for those, and only for those, for those who love God. Then at the end of the verse, he gives us a second description. It's a description of the same people. Uh, it's, a, it's a parallel description. All of those who are described by the phrase at the beginning of the verse are also described by those at the end of the verse. And that second description is this, those who are called according to his purpose. Such a close connection between the two is, is to be understood here that some of our English translations even put them together. For example, the New American Standard Bible says, translates verse 28 like this, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So two descriptions of the same people. The promise is for those whom God has called according to His purpose. And as we've seen before, this idea of calling here, those whom he has called, is a reference to what we in, in, in theological discussions refer to as the effectual call. That is, those that God has actually regenerated, born again, as we would say. Those that God has sovereignly brought from darkness to light. Those that walk and live, as we've seen in chapter 8, according to the Spirit. Those who have the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in them by Christ, as we learned in verse 4. Both of those descriptions, those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose, those are the qualifying statements of those to whom this promise is given. This great promise. It is the possession of those who are in Christ, Christians, only Christians, and all Christians. And what then is the promise? What is the meat of this little sandwich here in verse 28? Well, the promise is that all things work together for good. Now, we have to break that down as well. We have to see what are the all things that Paul is talking about. What does it mean that they work together? And what is the good for which they work together? And in fact, we're going to start, let's start with that last question. What does Paul mean when he says that all things work together for good? For our good, some translations say. The good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That translation from the New American Standard I just read. Does he mean that all things sort of work together in a general way that is positive? Well, no, he doesn't mean that. Since he says specifically here that they work together for good for those who are called, he is saying, and again, some English translations make this explicit, that the good being spoken of is the good of those or for those who are called. The good of those who love God. It is your good, Christian. Not just good, but it is your good. But what does that mean? In what sense is God working all things for your good? 
Does that mean that, that all things work together for our, our enjoyment, for our comfort, for our ease, for our advancement, for our, for our gratification? Well, no, obviously not. Not all things work for, for any of those things, at least in a temporal way. No, Paul, as he writes under the inspiration, the supervision of the Holy Spirit, is looking at the big picture here. And this is a big picture promise. Good here refers to our ultimate good. Our salvific good. That is good that has to do with our salvation. It is good that that has to do with our eternal state, our eternal good. With good being the good as God sees good, as God defines good, as God purposes good. And we need to define it that way. This is not, this is not a promise that says everything will, will be easy, that everything will be enjoyable or comfortable or, or gratifying. But good is what serves God's purpose for saving us and therefore ultimately brings glory to God. Good, as Paul means it here, is, good, is that good is what humbles us before God. Good is what strengthens us in our faith. Good is what what draws us close to God and what uh, induces us to worship. Good is what promotes love. Good is what builds up others. Good is what roots out sin and kills it. Good is what furthers God's purpose. And those things, and the things that lead to them, do not always mesh with the things that lead to our ease and our enjoyment and so forth. We need to take note of this. That this verse promises that in all things works for our good, not necessarily for our ease. They're two different things very often, aren't they? They're for our good, not for our satisfaction. Now, as we did last week, we can sort of illustrate that by considering Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Remember in 2 Corinthians, he wrote about his, the vision that he had of, of being in heaven. And then Paul said this, he said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. And Paul learned, we saw last week, after fruitlessly praying three times that God would remove it, that God in it was working for Paul's good. To demonstrate to Paul that God's grace is better than the ease of life without this thorn in the flesh. And it was working, God working for Paul's good that he had this thorn in the flesh, as Paul says in the verse, to keep me from being conceited. 
That was the good that God was working in Paul's life by giving him this thorn in the flesh and by not removing it. We need to learn that same lesson and to have God work that in our lives that is for our good regardless of how he has to do it. And he will. Now, if all the things then work together for your good, Christian, what does Paul mean by all things? Well, the larger context here informs that for us, or informs us in regard to that, and shows us that here, and if you're taking notes, you'll want to take this note down, that here all things means all things. All things. Now, we, thinking of, of Romans eight twenty eight, we are typically reminded of this verse, we typically quote this verse, when something bad has happened, right? Or to us or to someone else. And the temptation then is to limit it to those things. And certainly those are the times when the, the promise of this verse and the comfort of this verse are especially needed and especially helpful for us. But it is not just when bad things happen that this is true. When Paul says all things, he doesn't just mean all bad things. He means all things. All good things work for your good, Christian. Our blessings, our strengths, our victories. Those God uses those for our good. All things means indifferent things. Things that we don't even think about. Driving home from work, doing the dishes, throwing a football around, working on math homework. Now, how do those work for your good? I have no idea. But do they work for your good? Yes. How do I know? Because God says so. So good things and indifferent things. And finally, also, yes, the bad things work for your good. The suffering that you endure works for your good. The prayers that are answered differently than what you expected them to be answered or hoped for them to be answered. Even, even your sin, since this is, it is part of all things, must be recognized as being used by God for your good. This is something that we, we have to take on faith. We have to trust in God's promise that all things work together for good. Now, we do need to be careful in that last category. This does not mean that bad things become good, right? Isaiah 5, 20 pronounces a curse on those who call good evil and who call evil good. It is not that what is bad becomes good. Bad, as Huey Lewis said, bad is bad. But God uses bad things for his good purpose, as well as indifferent things, as well as good things. Finally, let me give you just a couple of words about this middle phrase, where Paul says that these things work together. 
mainly here just a couple of things to be aware of as we consider those. The first is when Paul says all things work together, that he is not talking about some kind of just naturalistic coincidence of cause and effect that ends up being advantageous for us as Christians uh, in some connected way that we, that we can't think of. This is not just the, the butterfly effect for Christians. But the Christian worldview, based on the teaching of Scripture, understand that things do not simply work together on their own in some kind of random way. Everything is under the sovereignty of God and the purpose of God. Even things that we think of as random. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The New American Standard translation of this verse, again, gives a a very strong focus on keeping God at the center of all of this and making sure that we don't pull out works together uh, and misunderstands it. The New American Standard says this, he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That understands all of this working, all of the, the... the, the interactions of, of the things in our lives and, and the, the working out of those things is all under the sovereignty of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God. It's true. It's not just that, that, that all things work out, but that God is working in them for your good. The other thing, um, and this leads right to that, a second thing that Paul is not saying here, he is not saying that God is sort of playing catch-up with these things, that he is responding to everything that happens in your life, uh, that happen, that he's kind of in a constant state of, of damage control, working to cause all of the things, whatever may crop up, to work toward the good of his people. God God is not busy making lemonade out of lemons. He's not responding. Because that misses the final words of this verse that this is done in the case of and for the sake of those who are called, Paul says, according to his purpose. And that leads us into verses, verses 29 and 30 and move us from this great promise to a grand purpose. And these verses, verses 29 and 30 then, a single sentence in the Greek, uh, though our version breaks the sentences apart there and makes a new sentence of verse 30, uh, it expresses a single thought here. And that thought is the spelling out of the purpose of God in the case of those who are the called according to that purpose. You, Christian. This sentence explains how we know verse 28 to be true. Because it is, or they are, expressive of God's divine sovereign purpose in choosing and calling people as His people. 
This verse, of course, is also important to show the, or these verses, verses 29 and 30, are important to show the, the cohesiveness of God's working out of His purpose in regard especially to our salvation. And, of course, they prove the security of the believer who finds himself in these verses. Verses 29 and 30 consists of, of five verbs that are arranged into four parallel statements that spell out God's purpose and how he sovereignly works out that purpose. The same structure, exactly the same. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That same structure uh, all the way through and, and this very concise sort of stepping pattern and the links from one to the next as he goes through these has caused this sentence to be known as the golden chain of salvation with the, the, the statements there linked together. And it begins, verse 29 begins with the word for. Again, one of those little words that that are so important, that show us, in this case, the connection between the promise of verse 28 and the purpose of verses 29 and 30. And it's a very close connection. And the links in this chain are, are what we can call universal connections. That is, we can translate each of these with the word all. All of those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. All of those whom he predestined, he also called, and so on. The other options would be some or all. And neither, all of, either of those would gut this, these verses of really any meaning. And so to, to put all in there as we read this, at least in our minds, makes explicit what is very clearly implicit in the way that Paul forms his statements here. So let's step through this chain, this chain of God's purpose, and see what it says. It begins with a statement that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now that's the one that gets the most attention. What does it mean, Christian, that God foreknew you? The word literally means simply to know beforehand. And there are some people who insist that that, that is its meaning here. That it has to mean that, that God simply is aware of you from eternity. But the context has to inform our understanding of this word. So let's think about it and, and look at a couple of other scriptures that use the same concept or the same word to help us understand it. First of all, and you don't have to turn here, but in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God says this to the prophet Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So God's saying, I foreknew you. I knew you before you were in the womb. Now, that could mean that God was just aware of Jeremiah before he was born. And certainly that's true. God does have knowledge of everything from eternity. So he did know that. But this passage in Jeremiah chapter 1 is in poetic form. And many of you, I know many of you ladies, you have been studying the Psalms, that you, you are familiar with this idea of parallelism in Hebrew poetry. 
And in one type of parallelism, uh, there will be a situation where a line of poetry will be followed by another line that says the same thing in a different way. And I'm sure you ladies have seen that all through the Psalms, and it's all through the Psalms. It's all through all kinds of Hebrew poetry. It's true here. And listen to the the whole of verse 5 of Jeremiah 1. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. In this parallelism that actually happens twice in this verse, knew, I knew you, is parallel to consecrated, which means to dedicate someone to something, which is parallel to the verb appointed at the last part of the verse. God is saying, I knew you before you were born. And in saying that, he's saying, before you were born, I appointed you. Before you were born, I called you to be a prophet of mine to the nations. And as we look at this, we see that this part of Jeremiah is Jeremiah recounting his calling to the office of prophet. We have the same type of thing, or we have another proof of this in the New Testament. In fact, it's right here in Romans. If you want to turn over one page or so to to chapter 11, Paul here is speaking of God's people, the Jews, and in verse 2, he says that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There Paul is contrasting rejection with God's foreknowing of his people. He has chosen them. He has set his sights on them. He has appointed them. Therefore, he's not going to reject them. And then finally, look back at our text in Romans 8.29. Here, as I said a moment ago, Paul is setting up this, or laying out, we could say, this chain This golden chain of salvation. He's showing God's purpose, God's grand purpose for his people. And the elements, remember four parallel statements here, link from one action of God as he works out his purpose to the next and to the next and to the next. So all who are one thing, he's saying, are also the next. And so on. That's the way the the grammar of the passage works. So let's, for the sake of argument, say that God's foreknowing his people means simply that he knows about them in advance. Well, who would that be? Whom does God know about before they are born? Everyone. Those whom he foreknew would be everyone, right? But then what does Paul say? And we're just going to follow the main line of thought here. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. So that would mean then that everyone, since everyone was foreknown, that everyone would be predestined. It goes on and says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. So that too would mean that everyone is called. And then that everyone is justified and that everyone is glorified. That's called universalism. And that's not what is taught anywhere in the Bible. But it is what you end up with if we take that word foreknow and make it simply mean um, prescience or just knowledge ahead of time. 
But we've seen that the concept in those other two passages, that the concept of God foreknowing someone is really a statement of him setting a purpose on someone, of him for choosing a person, for ordaining a person for a particular task. And that gives us this, that all of those upon whom has set his grace in his eternal counsel, he also, in line with that choice, in line with that purpose, he also predestined all of those. And it is all of those, but only those whom he forechose and predestinated that he then called and justified and glorified. So with that understanding... And this, that's the common understanding of this word foreknown here is that it, remain, it refers to being foreordained. Let us see then this grand purpose of God that's laid out for us in these verses. And we see the purpose because Paul doesn't just give us the four statements. He just doesn't give us the four links in the chain. But he also shows us where this chain is hooked where it is going, where the last link uh, is, is connected, as it were, is anchored, as it were. He gives us God's goal. He gives us God's purpose in these things, in all of these things, this foreknowing and, and predestinating and calling and all of these things. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Well, predestined for what? Well, to predestine someone, of course, means to set a destination, an end, a goal ahead of time. So basically, this is what we would think of as the the doctrine of election here. God predestinating people to something. But what is he predestinating them to? What is our, our destination that God has set out for us? In the midst of which, beloved, we can be assured that God works all things together for our good, the good of achieving that purpose. Well, it is, Paul says in verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is our destination, Christian. Christian brothers and sisters, your destination for which God foreknew you and for which he predestined you is that you would be conformed to the image of his son. And he does so as he adopts us as his children. Ephesians 1.5 says that God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according, he says, to the purpose of his will. There's that idea of purpose again. God is making you like Christ. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Now, we do not become Christ. We don't want to go that far. We do not become divine, but we are being made to be like Christ. Our Lord, we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. And that really points us in two directions when we think of what that means to be conformed to the image of Christ. It means two things. First is that it means sanctification. That we, through the work of the Spirit in us, 
as we've been discussing all along here in chapter 8, are day-by-day, step-by-step, trial-by-trial, that we are being formed into the moral image of Christ. Now, we are already declared to be in the moral image of Christ, right? We, talk about, we talked about it this morning. How the righteousness of Christ in our justification is credited to us. Our sins are removed from us through the work of Christ so that we stand before God, we often say this, as righteous as Jesus Christ. That is because we have been declared in our justification to be in the moral image of Christ. And in our sanctification then, Our day-to-day Christian living, our putting sin to death, our, our seeing the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives and increasing in our lives. As that goes on, as our sanctification goes on, we are day by day, little by little by little, becoming more in the moral image of Christ. Becoming more like what God has declared that we are. We are gradually being made into what we positionally are already in our justification. That's the first thing that is being done here as we are made to be like Christ, into the image of Christ. The second direction, the second aspect of that points us to the last day. It points us to our resurrection. That's the second thing. John, writing in his first epistle, tells us this, that, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Paul also wrote this this to the Philippian Christians to encourage them. He said, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's the second aspect of this. And this is God's grand purpose for us, to make us morally like Christ and to make us physically like Christ. Not that we're going to look like Him, but that we're going to be like Him. As He was raised in a glorified body, we will be raised in a glorified body. One of the aspects of the the resurrection that we talk about is that He is in that the first fruit. He is the guarantee, Christ was, of what will happen to us on the last day when God, with the same power with which He raised Christ, will raise us. To have the same kind of body that Christ will have. So we will be like him morally. We will be like him physically. That's the purpose. To make us like Christ for the sake of Christ. As part of Christ's reward. Not just as part of your reward. But it is part of Christ's reward. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, very well-known passage, you know it. Isaiah writes, and he says this toward the end of that passage. He says, when his soul, speaking of Christ, makes an offering for guilt, it says, he shall see his offspring. 
He shall see his offspring. He will be given a people. A people like him. And it's us. Here in Romans, the the same goal, using a slightly different picture, is given to us. And it is that that this is all, the end of verse 29, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, there's the same idea. Christ is the firstborn. He is to be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the goal. That's the purpose Paul is saying here. And if Christ is the firstborn, well, what does that mean? There's going to be later born. That's us. That's you. That is our destiny. As heirs of God, as joint heirs with Christ, our elder brother and our redeeming king, that we will be made like him as part of our reward and as part of his reward for being obedient, for coming and living perfectly and dying a sacrificial death on the cross. And it is with an eye toward that grand purpose that God causes all things to work together for the good, for your good. And to that end, to make sure uh, that that happens, Paul tells us that those whom he predestined to that end, he also called. Again, this is the idea of effectual calling. All those that he predestined, he also brings in. The Holy Spirit brings them in sovereignly, divinely, irresistibly. The Holy Spirit works in an elect sinner and implants faith in his heart and brings him from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of God. And those that he calls, all of those that he calls, and only those that he calls, he also justified. Everyone he calls, he also, based on the work of Christ, forgives their every sin and declares them righteous in his sight, acceptable to him and his beloved son. And that really, though it's unspoken here, unwritten here, it includes all of the benefits that we've been seeing as we've been going through chapter 8 and even back into chapter 5. It includes peace with God. It includes peace in trials. It includes the the removal of any and all condemnation. It includes the fulfillment of the requirements of the law on your behalf. It includes adoption into the family of God. It includes the indwelling of the Spirit of God. It includes the assurance that we are God's children. It includes the inheritance that is secured by Jesus Christ. It includes the knowledge that trials are not even worth comparing with that glory and that inheritance that we have. It includes the great promise that God works all things, good and bad and indifferent things, together for our good as He works out His grand purpose in us that we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And because the purposes of God 
are not, will not, cannot be frustrated or fail to come to completion, Paul at the end can reach forward into the future and assure us that the end is just as secure as the beginning and that therefore those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now in time, that hasn't happened yet. It won't happen until the last day when Christ returns. But if we are anywhere on that chain, we are everywhere on that chain. It will all be true of us. And so Paul is able to speak of the glory of the last day as if it had already come. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You, Christian, are as good as glorified. We sing a song that says that the saints in heaven are are happier but not more secure than you are sitting here this morning in Christ. Dwell on that this afternoon. And this all ends where God intends for it to end. With his son, the firstborn among many brothers, worshipped through the unending ages. Brothers and sisters through the spirit of adoption and the justifying grace of God the Father worshiping God. Kept by the grace and saved by the grand purpose of God in Jesus Christ. Let us praise him this morning. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that we may go in. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus forgiveness receives. Great things he has taught us, great things he has done, And great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory. Great things He has done. Let's pray. Our God, we give you praise for the great things that you have done, especially this morning as we consider your grand purpose of conforming us into the image of your beloved Son. And and through that, giving to us the, the assurance that everything that happens, good and bad and indifferent, all are used by you toward that goal, toward that purpose. And we thank you, Lord, for the comfort and for the assurance that that gives us. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in you, that we would glorify you in all of this as we consider it. In Jesus' name, amen.